51. You can follow the reading on page 563. Question 126. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the fifth petition, the Lord asks us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Before we look at the meaning of this petition, however, it may be well that we ask ourselves, why? Why do we or why should we pray the words of this petition. See, there have been, and there still may be, people who refuse to pray the words of the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. After all, they say, after all, Christ taught this prayer prior to his suffering and death on the cross. In other words, they say, Christ taught this petition before the time he made atonement for our sin. Therefore, they say, therefore, this petition can be prayed only by those who have not as yet received forgiveness for their sins. But, ah, but it cannot, at least it need not be prayed by those who confess Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. In other words, it need not be prayed by Christians. After all, their sins are already forgiven, they say. Well, now, in that connection, we have to be on our guard against two erroneous ideas. On the one side, you see, there are those who, on the basis of a passage such as Romans 5 verse 1, say that the children of God are free to sin. After all, they say, doesn't the Apostle Paul say in Romans 5 that we are justified by faith and that we have peace with God? Well, then they say, Paul says it clearly. We are already justified now, today, which is true, right? And then they go on to say, if that is true, if indeed it is true as that we are already justified now, why then that means, ah yes, it must mean that all our sins, those of the past as well as those of the future, all our sins, all our sins are already forgiven. And if that is true, they then go on to say, 
if that really is true, then we can now freely play with sin. You may recall that the Nicolaitans, mentioned in the book of Revelation, already held some such view. Well now, some of those who hold to this line of thinking went so far as to use this as a test of the believer's faith. If, they said, if you don't really dare to play with sin, why then your faith must not be a very strong faith. Maybe it isn't even genuine faith. Well, such was the one extreme. At the other end of the spectrum, however, there are those who, though they confess that it is indeed true that we are justified by faith, nevertheless lack the comfort of that faith. They continue to live as though the burden of sin is still upon them. Oh, yes, they live as though God's wrath is still threatening them. Clearly, such people deny in and by their living what they confess with their mouth. Well, now, it is true. Praise the Lord, it is true. We are justified by faith. And therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess with the church of all ages that we believe the forgiveness of sins. And so we confess also that God, because of what Christ has done, his work of atonement, God will never hold against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle with all against all my life. Rather, in his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ, to free me forever from judgment. But, but now the question is still before us. Why then should we pray this petition? Should we not rather say now, Father, thank you. Thank you so very much for the forgiveness of our, of my sins. A quick look at Romans 8, I think, will give you the answer to the problem. See, in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Did you hear? Paul says not only that the elect are justified in and through the work of Christ, 
But, uh, but he says also that Christ nevertheless still intercedes for us. The question is, why? Why does Jesus still today pray for us, pray for you? The Apostle John writes in his first letter, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh no. What Paul and John are saying is this. It is indeed true. Christ has perfectly satisfied the demands of the Father. His atoning death, it was a perfect atonement. Nothing need be, nothing can be added to it. Nevertheless, ah yes, nevertheless, it is true also that to this very day, Jesus in heaven prays for us. He pleads our cause before the Father. Do you know why? Why do you think is that so very necessary? Well, it is in order to make us partakers of, that is in order to, that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. You see, we, we who have to be made partakers of Christ's righteousness, that is why Christ intercedes for us. He asks that the Father, through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, will work a saving faith in the hearts of his children, that faith by which they come to accept the promise of, the, of God as a promise to them personally. So you see, there are two things that must be remembered at all times when discussing the fifth petition. The Bible assures us that Christ's intercession will always be heard. That first of all. And secondly, the Bible tells us also that the children of God remain sinners as long as they are in this life. You see, it is still true. The intention of the thoughts of our hearts is tainted with sin. David, remember, confessed, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Well now, therein, in that reality, therein lies the reason why we too must pray with David. Father, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, we have to battle against our sin every day.
That's why we pray the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That petition, it is both, it is a plea that God will not hold against us or impute to us any of the sins we do, any transgressions we have, or the evil that constantly clings to us. And it is, secondly, an acknowledgement of God's grace in us, through which we forgive our neighbor. When the Catechism talks about the evil that constantly clings to us, it doesn't simply want to remind us of the fact that we are sinners. Rather, it wants to confront us with the fact that so often we simply don't commit our lives to and for the glory of the Lord. As the first petition of the Lord's Prayer asks that of us. Remember, then we pray, hallowed be your name. That is, help us, O Lord, to really know you, to bless, worship, and praise you for all your works. Moreover, so often we show little interest in or concern for the kingdom of God, even though we pray, your kingdom come. And we pray, your will be done. That is, help us to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any back talk. But an honest look at ourselves will show us that in all kinds of ways we really want to be a law to ourselves. We want to be, we want the right to decide on our own what Christian living is, what it should be all about. We have to learn it over and again, what it means to be a follower of Christ. See, Christ, the eternal Son of God, Christ was not a law to himself. He did not seek himself. Rather, he did the will of his Father who had sent him. He became obedient unto death, death on a cross. Ah, yes, we talk a lot about the great love of the Savior, right? And it is true, his love for us is immensely great. As a matter of fact, it is beyond our comprehension, but, but we may not make that love cheap by indeed talking about it and, and then letting it, not letting it, move us to action. Remember, our talk about the love of the Savior is cheap, talk unless, yes, unless it moves us to offer ourselves on the altar of obedient service. And when we then see how often we fail, how much and how often we refuse to do what the Lord really is asking of us, then we, then you will 
plead with the Lord. Do not hold against me, poor wretched sinner that I am, any of the sins I do or the evil that constantly clings to me. When David came to see the greatness of his sin, remember, he cried out from the bottom of his heart against you, you alone, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Moreover, he confessed then that should the Lord enter into judgment with him, that judgment would be just, it would be justified. But David then dared also to pray, Purge me with, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When you listen to those words of confession in the context of the entire psalm, then you hear David doing two things. David confesses his sin, his transgression, and he asks the Lord to restore him to office because it was the longing of his heart that he live his whole life they fulfill his entire calling for and unto the Lord. And see, the question that comes to each one of us now is this question. When do I so confess? And when do I so plead with the Lord? How many days go by that we don't really think about our sin? and much less that we plead with the Lord for the restoration of our life, that our daily living, our daily walk of life be a response of praise to God. See, that can only mean that we don't really know, really know, how great and our sin and misery really are. Ask yourself, have I ever shed a tear on account of my sins or on account of the sins of others? Ah, you say, but, but surely Christians do not cry over their sins, do they? Don't they? How then do you read your Bible? Was Ezra wrong? He prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God because of the sins of the people. And were God's covenant people wrong to join him in bitter weeping? Was Paul wrong to cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what about those who refuse to believe? What about those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you ever think of them? Cry out for them? Jeremiah cried out, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. 
So Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because he did not know the time of its visitation. Jesus wept, you understand, because he saw what kind of judgment the Lord God would cast upon the city that refused to repent. And so Paul, during three years of ministry in Ephesus, did not cease night or day, he says, to admonish everyone with tears. He could write also that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen, the Jews. And the psalmist, concerned about the name of his God, see the psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Ah, you see, it was that kind of concern for the neighbor that led Paul to write to the Philippians about the many whom he could only mention with tears because they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And now ask yourself, when was the last time that I cried out, Father, forgive. Father, for Christ's sake, forgive me, forgive us our debts. Forgive, Father, my, our negligence and apathy and lack of genuine concern for the honor and the glory of your name. And forgive, Father, the many ways in which I sin against my neighbor and against those who are my brothers and sisters in the Lord. You, O Lord, ask that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of your commandments should ever arise in my heart. You ask that with all my heart, I always hate sin and take pleasure in what is right. But about I know, I know my sin, O Lord, and I ask for your forgiveness. Against that background, I now move on to the second thought, the fifth petition of the fifth petition. It is an acknowledgement of God's grace in us through which we forgive our neighbor. As you know, when Christ taught us to pray the fifth petition, he added the words, as we forgive our debtors. In the Gospel of Matthew, you read these important words at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. For, meaning because, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does Jesus mean? 
Is Jesus saying here that God will or that he should take his cue from us? Is our willingness to forgive those who have sinned against us somehow to be the example according to which the Father should forgive us? Oh, you know it. If that were to be so, we would never, ever receive forgiveness, right? Or is Jesus perhaps saying that this is the basis, the foundation on which we stand when asking for forgiveness? You could almost get that idea, especially when you read this prayer as recorded by Luke. See, Luke writes, and forgive us our sins for, again, meaning because, for we forgive, we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You hear it? That is a tremendously powerful statement. We ourselves forgive everyone. The Bible makes it clear, however, that the basis for our forgiveness cannot and it does not lie in us, in our forgiving others. The basis for forgiveness lies only and exclusively in the grace of God. Never forget it. The fact that we learn to forgive others, that is the fruit of the forgiveness which is ours in Jesus Christ. Oh no, the writers of the catechism understood that. They explain, forgive us just as we are determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. Then and so you see the connection. You see, as God answers the first part of this petition, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, The fellowship between him and us, his children, is restored. Just so, as he answers the second part, as we forgive our debtors, the fellowship between us and our neighbor is restored. And see, the two parts of the petition are joined, that is, they are connected by the word as. That tells us that there is, that there has to be a close relationship between what God does and what he asks us, his children, to do. Don't forget, we have been renewed after the image of Christ. That means, among other things, that we have to forgive our neighbor because we ourselves have received forgiveness from Christ. See, when you've understood that, then the question hits home. Where? I ask, where is the evidence of that grace of the Lord that we forgive others? Oh yes, we say the words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But all too often, we simply refuse to do it, to practice it. 
We can find a hundred excuses why we, in our particular situation, don't have to do it now. It's the other guy who is obviously at fault. Or why must it always be I who has to go to the other guy? Or, I guess, I'm willing to forgive. But if the other guy come to me, and all along, sin grows. Did you ever think of that? Sin grows. Walls that separate grow higher and higher. The fellowship is destroyed. And all along, we refuse to hear the word of Christ. He said, whenever, I ask, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Suppose for a moment that the fault lies with the other person. What does that mean? Does that mean that I am now excused? Does it mean that now the commandment that I must love my neighbor doesn't really apply? May I simply leave my brother in his sin? Ah, but if I refuse to forgive my neighbor, the father will refuse to forgive me. That, you see, is the point of the parable of the forgiving servant. We read the story. Jesus talks about a king who forgave one of his servants a huge debt. Then that servant met a fellow servant who owed him a little more than a couple of dimes. And he took him and he shook him and he refused to forgive him. When we read that story of Jesus, we very quickly draw the conclusion that as that king, the Lord, forgives us a tremendous debt, so we should be willing to forgive our fellow debtors the little they owe us. And there's no doubt about it, that surely is true. But the emphasis, I guess the emphasis of the story doesn't lie there at all. Peter, you will remember, had asked the question, Lord, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He suggests seven times. But Jesus says to him, No, no, not seven times, but seventy times seven times. It is then, after having said that to Peter, it is then that Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. And see, by means of that parable, Jesus means to underscore 
how very hard, how very difficult it is to forgive even once. See, if the question is, how often? Well, then the answer can only be, always, Peter, again and again. But, but don't take that lightly. Don't think that that is an easy thing to do. As a matter of fact, you will not be able to do that, not even once, on your own. Nevertheless, when you yourself have received forgiveness, why then you must be forgiving. That's how the grace of God works. You cannot receive it and then not live out of it. Not to be forgiving when you yourself have received forgiveness. Not to be forgiving is to deny the forgiving grace of the Lord in your life. Then reformation cannot take place. Then there is no healing, no restoration. Then the judgment remains. See, we need to confess, we need to live this petition every day. Then we will know the joy of our salvation. Then the name of our God will be glorified and his kingdom will come and his will will be done. And we will know the joy of the Lord today and forever. Praise the Lord. Amen.